0: Section 14 of The Science, History of the Universe, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Emily Mercer. The Science, History of the Universe, Volume 3, Edited by Francis Rolt Wheeler. Physics, Chapter 8 Sound. Part 1. There is no more general instinct in man than love of the music of nature. Often, too, the light accents of almost inaudible sounds are more eloquent and persuasive than the louder vibrations heard in a world where every smallest particle of matter vibrates. The whole physical universe is but a fathomless ocean of vibrations, although only a few of these appear as audible sound, Yet, in human history, no physical sense has had such fatal influence as that of hearing. The vocal memnon of Egypt, the oracles of Greece, the war trumpets of Rome, the vibrant harp strings of Scandinavian skald, the shrill call of bagpipes, the booming tree drums of the South American Indians, the violin of Rouget de Lille, the triumphant crash of modern regimental band or mass symphony orchestra, finally, the human voice. It needs but a glance at a few such examples to prove how surpassing is the influence of sounds that impinge upon the ear on the mind. It is said that Apollo was once wandering along the shore of the Mediterranean Sea, and found there the shell of a dead turtle, with a few strings of dried flesh stretched across it. He held it up and delighted himself with the musical sound which it made in the wind. He plucked the strings and found that they made a pleasing sound together. Such was the origin of the lyre. Pythagoras constructed on this model an instrument of a single string, the monochord, which was capable of producing notes of various pitch. The string was stretched above a board, and running over a bridge was attached to weights by means of which the tension on the string could be adjusted. Strange theories that the Greeks had as to the nature of sound. Not the least curious of these theories was that enunciated by Alcmion of Crotona, who wrote, We hear with the ear because it contains a vacuum. Little as they knew of what is called today the science of sound, however, the Greeks carried the theory of music to a high degree of development. They were familiar with the diatonic scale of C, and wrote massive bass melodies using natural notes, these melodies being classified as modes, according to the note upon which the melody ended. They had six such modes ending on every note of the scale except the seventh. The accompaniment was put in above the melody in a matter exactly reverse of that now generally in use. The so-called Ionian mode corresponded to the modern scale of C natural, the Mixolydian to that of G natural, the Iolian to the scale of A minor. These same modes, adopted from Greek by St. Ambrose and added to by St. Gregory, became the basis of many of the grand melodies still extant in the ritual of the Catholic Church. The Greeks also recognized three genera, or varieties, of modulation, the diatonic, the chromatic, and the enharmonic. The latter contained intervals similar to a semitone, the least difference of pitch to which modern ears are accustomed. The peripatetic school of philosophers held that the higher the pitch of a sound, the greater was its velocity. They also believed that the source of a sound determined the speed of its transmission, errors which were not disproved until early in the 17th century. Oracles played an important part in the history of Grecian development, as in fact in that of most ancient nations. The simple device of a speaking tube made it possible to produce those mysterious voices whose supernatural revelations so swayed the imagination of an unsophisticated people. Such were the cryptic and potent utterances of the famous Greek at Oracle Delphi. To the modern mind accustomed to wonder at nothing, To explain everything, the faith in men in the oracular utterances of antiquity seems as barbarous, childish. Yet the roar of trains and machinery, the whistles, bells, and rattling of wheels of commerce cannot drown the quiet voice of the savant, the man who knows. The oracle still speaks, but speaks today from the mysterious retirement of the laboratory with an authority as absolute as that which bid the Athenians defend their city with wooden walls." It is apparent that the multitude of sounds which reach the ear must be conveyed to it by some material medium. In most cases this medium is the air. Indeed, the striking fact has long since been pointed out that but for this atmospheric ocean the world would be plunged for us in perpetual silence. The bell jar experiment of Francis Hauxby, made in the 17th century, proved that no sound is audible in a vacuum. The ringing of a bell became rapidly fainter when the air was exhausted from the bell jar under which it was placed. The fact that air is not the only conductor of sound, nor the best, is well known. Tapping a table, the sound is heard much more distinctly when the ear is placed close to the wood. The Indian places his ear near the ground to note the sound of approaching footsteps. An oncoming train is heard through the rails long before the sound of it reaches through the air the detonation of a distant explosion comes with a double shock, the sound traveling faster through the earth than through the air. In addition, then, the more dense the medium is, the better conductor does it become of sound waves. Liquids transmit the vibrations of sound better than gases. Stones clapped together underwater produce a sharp stunning effect upon the ear placed under water to hear them. The bell signals installed on the American coast give practical evidence of the superior transmitting power of water over air. The velocity of sound in air was investigated in the sixteenth century by Marin Mersenne noting the difference in time between flash and the report of firearms at known distances he got one thousand three hundred eighty feet per second as the speed of propagation of sound waves this result was far from accurate. Pierre Gassendi, making similar experiments, used guns large and small and disproved the Aristotelian theory that the velocity of sound was dependent upon source and pitch. To anyone, indeed, in modern days, this idea of the peripatetic school must appear absurd. For the pitch and source of sounds from a modern orchestra are as various as musical genius can make them, yet when played together the sounds of all reach the ear at the same moment. That the source of sound does not affect speed of its transmission is not, however, universally true. Captain Perry, on his Arctic expedition, found that violently loud sounds would travel faster than softer ones. During artillery practice, it was shown that by persons at distance from the guns, the report of the latter was heard before the command of the officer to fire. In a series of experiments upon the velocity of sound in rocks, Mallet showed, with a charge of 2,000 pounds of gunpowder, the average velocity of the sound was a blast 967 feet per second, while a charge of 12,000 pounds produced a speed of transmission of 1,210 per second. Through iron, the speed of sound has been shown to be still faster. M. Byatt, experimenting with an iron tube 3,120 feet long, found the speed of sound through this tube to be 9 or 10 times as fast as in air. It is now generally conceded that the speed of sound in iron is actually about 5 times as fast as in air, and through water about 4 times as fast. The great law of inverse squares, which has been shown to be so general in physics, applies also to sound. If four bells of the same kind are placed at a distance of 20 yards... From the ear, and another at a distance of ten yards, the single bell produces a sound as loud as that of the four. How far a sound is audible depends on its loudness. The report of a volcano at St. Vincent was heard at Demerara 300 miles away, and the cannons of the Battle of Waterloo are said to have been audible at Dover. The study of sound and music, the classification of tones and their combination, reached a high point of development long before any complete analysis had been made of the cause of sound and the manner of its transmission. About the end of the 17th century, Joseph Sover, a poor adventurer who found his way on foot to Paris seeking his fortune, became professor of mathematics at Collège Royal. He published important papers on the discovery of overtones in strings, using paper writers to locate the points of greatest and least motion when the strings were set in vibration. He had observed and explained the phenomenon of sympathetic vibration. From the beats produced by organ pipes of nearly equal length, he determines the vibration rates of notes given forth by each. Two pipes were tuned in the ratio of 24 divided by 25. When air was blown into these, four beats per second were observed, from which Sover concluded that the higher pitched pipe was producing 100 vibrations per second. The experiments of William Noble and Thomas Pigott at Oxford had proved the vibration of a string is greatest at the center, and it may also be made to vibrate in halves, thirds, fourths, fifths, etc. The strings of a harp or piano, for example, vibrate chiefly as a whole, that is, throughout their entire length. The harder the string is plucked, or struck, the louder is the sound, and the more ample is the motion of the string. Thus amplitude of vibration was seen to be a determining factor in the loudness of a sound. Not only nearness and amplitude of vibration, but echo as well may increase the intensity of a sound. Speaking tubes, megaphones, and such devices depending on this principle were in use long before the theory of sound was generally understood. The effect here is evidently one of reinforcement by echo, which in smooth tubes is so great that M. Byatt observed that a conversation could be carried on in a low tone through a small tube 1,040 yards long. For very long distances, however, it is evident that the speaking tube is not a practical device, as it would require eight minutes for sound to travel from one town to another 100 miles away, less than one-tenth of the distance equally and instantly bridged today by wireless telegraph. The father of acoustics, introduced about the end of the 18th century a new chapter in the study of sound. Ernst Florenz Friedrich Klandi, educated for the law, proved himself a much better scientist than lawyer. He experimented with vibrating plates covered with sand. The collection of the sand at nodes, or points of least vibration, formed the famous Figures of Klandi. These were exhibited before Napoleon and the conqueror of Europe, presented him with 6,000 francs to enable him to translate into French his acoustic. Clondy invented a torsional pendulum in which the motive force of gravity was replaced by the molecular resistance of a rod to the effect of twisting. He made many calculations of the absolute rate of vibration of sounding bodies and determined the velocity of sounds in other gases than air by filling organ pipes with a gas noting the resulting pitch. Felix Savart, the greatest master of his time in the theory of sound, invented a simple but effective instrument to show that the vibration rate of a body is the sole factor of the pitch in the note which it produces. A toothed wheel was made to rotate rapidly against the edge of a card. By increasing or decreasing the speed of rotation, the pitch of the note produced could be raised or lowered at will. A dial indicated the number of shocks per second made by the teeth of the wheel striking the card. Canard Latour invented about the same time, an instrument often heard today in connection with steam whistles, the siren, so-called because it could produce sounds audible in water as well as in air. A current of air blown through holes in a swiftly revolving disk produced notes at which could be regulated to give any desired pitch. This apparatus of Latour was used by Savart with certain improvements to determine the limits of audible sounds. He found that he could hear tones of bodies vibrating at a rate of 48,000 per second. The lower limit of audible vibration he placed at 16 or 14 per second. With the same velocity the siren gives the same sound in water as in air and all gases. Thus the number of vibrations per second, irrespective of the material of the vibrating body, was proved to be the sole factor in determining pitch. It is interesting to note that the siren has been applied to find the rapidity of motion in the buzzing wings of insects the tiny gauze pinions of the great gnats have thus been found to vibrate fifteen thousand times in a second about the middle of the last century was invented an instrument so similar to the human ear that it deserves some attention E. Leon Scott produced an apparatus which he called the phonautograph, so beautifully constructed as to register not only the vibrations produced by solid bodies, but also those produced by wind instruments, by the voice and singing, and even such noises as that of thunder or the report of a gun. A small cask of plaster of Paris, perhaps a foot and a half long, was closed at one end but for a small circular space over which was fitted a flexible membrane." Plaster of Paris was selected on account of its absence of elasticity and its very slight susceptibility to vibration. A stylus or blunt needle, in contact with the membrane, recorded the vibrations of the latter upon a revolving cylinder. A movable piece, called the subdivider, enables the experimenter to adjust at will the arrangement of the lines of greatest and least vibration. Comparing the ellipsoid cask with the auditory canal, he stretched the membrane with the tympanum, or drum, of the ear, and subdivider with the chain of little bones which touch the tympanum; the likeness of this instrument the organ of hearing becomes singularly apparent. Before the researches of Savart, it was generally assumed that sounds above eighteen thousand per second and below thirty two per second were inaudible to human ears. M. Desprez, investigating the same subject, disputed Savard's results, maintaining that the higher and lower limits of audible sound were respectively 73,700 vibrations and 32 vibrations per second. It is probable that the ears of even trained experts will vary greatly in their sensibility to sounds of extreme pitch. The intensity of a sound will also evidently make it audible when another less intense sound of the same pitch cannot be heard at all. The question of quality of sounds was first clearly explained by the great Hemholtz. His Leo von dem Tönenverdungen has gone through many German and English editions. This wonderful investigator, mathematician, and physicist showed that musical tones were due to regularity of vibration, discordant tones due to irregularity musical tones he distinguished by their intensity, pitch, and quality. The quality of a sound, he found, depended upon the number of upper partials, or overtones, present in the vibration of any body. The electrician Georges S. Ohm was the first to point out that there is only one form of vibration which will give rise to no overtones, but consists only of fundamental note. This was the vibration peculiar to the pendulum and tuning fork. Hemholtz's experiments showed analytically the composition of vowel qualities, how the infinite subtleties of inflection in the human voice are due not so much to the loudness or softness of the instrument as to the number and position of these upper tones present with and surrounding with the fundamental. If only the unevenly numbered partials, says he, are present, as in narrow, stopped organ pipes, piano strings struck in their middle points, and clarinets. The quality of the tone is hollow, and when a large number of such upper partials are present, nasal. When the prime tone predominates, the quality of tone is rich, but when the prime tone is not sufficiently superior in strength to the upper partial, the quality of tone is poor. Hemholtz designed a series of glass globes, resonators, which he made such size as to correspond with the vibration numbers of the upper partials of a given fundamental tone. When the fundamental tone was sounded, he held each one of these resonators to his ear, and if that particular overtone were present, it would at once be reinforced and exposed by the resonator. Thus, he proved beyond question the fact that it is the overtones of any given note which lends to its peculiar character, tone color, or timbre. Rudolph Konig, the eminent instrument maker of Paris, constructed a series of resonators which were an improvement upon the designs of Hemholtz. He made his resonators cylindrical in form, having over one end a close-fitting cap, by means of which the cylinder could be drawn out and tuned to a nicety. Then he conceived the brilliant idea of arranging these resonators on a frame connected with the mammometric mirror, whereby the presence of each and every overtone could be instantly detected by the dentations of the flame. But Hemholtz was not content with the analysis of tones according to their quality. He verified his results by the synthesis of the same tones of their constituents. By means of a series of electromagnets, he succeeded in making all possible combinations of overtones and producing notes of every quality. Professor Ganon's of Physique thus summarizes the facts which the inestimably valuable researches of Hemholtz have contributed to the study of tone color. 1. Simple tones, as those produced by a tuning fork with a resonance box, and by wide-covered pipes, are soft and agreeable without any roughness, but weak, and in the deeper notes, dull. 2. Musical sounds accompanied by a series of harmonics, say, up to the sixth in moderate strength, are full and musical. In comparison with the simple notes, they are grander, richer, and more sonorous. Such are the sounds of open organ pipes, of the pianoforte, etc. 3. If only the uneven harmonics are present, as in the case of narrow covered pipes, of pianoforte strings struck in the middle, clarinets, etc., the sound becomes indistinct, and when a greater number of harmonics are audible, the sound acquires a nasal character. 4. If the harmonics beyond the 6th and 7th are very distinct, the sound becomes sharp and rough. If less strong, the harmonics are not prejudicial to the musical usefulness of the notes. On the contrary, they are useful as impairing character and expression to the music. Of this kind are most stringed instruments and most pipes furnished with tongues, etc. Sounds in which the harmonics are particularly strong acquire thereby a peculiarly penetrating character, such as those yielded by brass instruments. M. Joulant-Lisejoux designed a method of tracing by means of a stylus the vibration of two tuning forks known as Lisa Jue figures. Nathaniel Bowditch of Salem, Massachusetts, had also previously to Lisa Jue's experiments succeeded in producing the same figures. End of section 14. Recording by Emily Mercer.